two sharper iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, March 9th, we are studying John chapter 12, verses 34 to 43. In today's text, the Jerusalem crowd still does not believe Jesus despite his words and signs. As Jesus prepares to receive glory from his Father, so many of the people love the glory of man instead of the glory of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Philip Hoppe. Pastor Hoppy serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppy, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Glad to be with you again today. So we get started. Let's talk some context. We are in John chapter 12. What should we know about the gospel and what's been happening recently that'll help us into today's text? Right. So I suppose maybe the most important thing is just to get a little bit of the historical context here that, you know, uh, shortly before this, um, we have... Uh, entered into Holy Week um, events. We've had uh, the triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem, and then also we have in John the cleansing of the temple there as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Um, And so, you know, sometimes when we get uh, into Holy Week and then we sort of go into some of these sections that aren't sort of the events of Holy Week, we can kind of forget that we are in Holy Week if we're just kind of jumping in and out, you know. So I think that's important to know here and probably important today to help us remember that we do sort of see the opposition to Christ uh, sort of being solidified in this section, that we're getting to the point where those who are going to seek and eventually um, you know, uh, have uh, Jesus crucified, um, they are, you know, becoming hardened, and we'll get to that word later, uh, in their position that that is what they uh, should do. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this yesterday, that with John, you have the triumphal entry, and that's on Palm Sunday. And then as best as it seems, these events that we are still reading here in the rest of chapter 12 are also on Palm Sunday. But by the end of of our text, Jesus is going to withdraw so that in chapter 13, we're already on Monday, Thursday, and John's going to spend pretty much the rest of his time there on Monday, Thursday, up until the trial of Jesus. So he really does skip over some of those more familiar Holy Week events that we know from the Synoptic Gospels, what happens on Holy Monday or Tuesday. John really focuses on Palm Sunday and gives us more of that conversation that happens on Palm Sunday, rather than all of the events that happen afterward, before then John really gives us so much information about what Jesus says on Monday, Thursday. So again, we're in that Holy Week context. What has Jesus been talking about? You know, we know the the triumphal entry, but sometimes, as you said, we forget all the preaching that happened afterward. What has Jesus been preaching about most recently that leads into what we're going to read today? Right. And so kind of the, you know, the final thing, at least right before 
where we'll begin today is that he simply says, right, that the the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Um, and, you know, as we when we get into our text, we'll see that for whatever reason, uh, the crowd does seem to understand what he's talking about when he says lifted up. You know, they uh, do seem to get that he's speaking about uh, crucifixion, about dying by crucifixion. Um, so that, you know, we, I think we can assume that that phrase must have just sort of uh, been a very well-known way to talk about that manner of death. Cause that's what we're told is, you know, he said it that way so that, um, you know, we would be told, uh, what the manner of death was. And so that's kind of the immediate context is he says, Hey, right. Me, the son of man is going to be crucified. And that kind of leads into our text. All right, so we are starting today at John 12, verse 34. So the crowd answered him, Jesus, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man, more than the glory that comes from God. That's our text for today. That is John 12, verses 34 to 43. So, Pastor Oppi, again, as you pointed out, we're in the middle of a conversation here between Jesus and the people who are listening to him. Jesus has just said, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John the evangelist tells us that Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The response of the crowd today is in is directly related to that. So they they say we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? As you said, it seems that they they understand what Jesus is talking about his crucifixion. If nothing else, they at least understand this connection between his that they know he's going to die, and there's something about the death that they're they're certainly paying attention to, even if maybe they don't have crucifixion in mind, but sure seems that they've got something right. So talk more about what what they're thinking in the question that they ask. What do they have in mind? What's their expectation that leads to this question? Right. So it's, you know, it's very interesting that in one way, you know, um, largely uh, in this section we're dealing with today, we're going to have a lot of uh, condemnation of the unbelief of those that are present there. And yet, you know, if we were to give them any credit here, they at least are trying to think through this biblically, if we can put it that way, according to the scriptures. 
um, they are basically saying, hey, listen, right? There's all these different passages uh, and maybe just noting one, you know, Second Samuel chapter 7, which we often refer to about uh, David being promised that he will have one who will rule on his throne forever. They say there are all these passages that speak about a forever Messiah, right? Whether, again, it's the, the king like David or whether it's the, uh, the priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. There's all this forever talk. And, you know, they simply sort of ask a very logical question. Well, if you are this Messiah, this son of man, and you die, well, that seems to go against what the scriptures have taught is that the Messiah is going to reign forever. So how is that possible? Um, and then, you know, they do throw in this, who is the son of man? You know, it's sort of an interesting deal because in one sense, their question uh, sort of assumes that Jesus at least is making the claim that he's the son of man, but they do kind of throw that in again at the end and probably there to clarify, well, okay, are we thinking this son of man, are we right in thinking this is the Messiah, that this is the one that's going to reign forever? Or, you know, have we somehow conflated several things? But but I think at this point, they really just ask a very logical question. They say, what we understand from the scriptures is the Messiah will reign forever. And probably, even though, you know, this is hard to think through, they believe that was going to happen in a very um, literal, earthly sense, right? I mean, we, we might say, well, how could you ever think there would be a earthly king who could reign forever. Don't you have to think there's more to it than that? But uh, since the prophecy said that, we have to kind of give them a little bit of credit here for saying, well, this is what God says is when the Messiah shows up, he'll reign forever. And now you say you're going to die. So the the misunderstanding that they have, or the part that they can't reconcile with what they know from the scriptures is this matter of suffering and death, that they're okay with the Christ being glorified, they're okay with the Christ reigning forever, but they can't figure out how the glorification, to use the term that Jesus used in the previous text, they can't figure out how that could go with suffering and death. Yeah, correct. And I think, you know, um, sometimes with this whole thing, we we can go to one side or the other where we sort of, when we're looking, you know, at how these Old Testament people uh, thought, they seem to, you know, only kind of catch the messianic prophecies that talk about glory and reigning and victory over enemies. And they seem to, at least most of them, uh, to miss the things, say, like, you know, Isaiah 53 about that servant suffering. Uh, and of course, Jesus will later, you know, explain, um, you know, to the people after his resurrection that, you know, didn't you get this? This was all there in the scriptures that the son of man had to suffer and then be raised up, right? Uh, and uh, be glorified through all of this. Um, but there's just, you know, there there's this kind of uh, disconnect in their, in their mind where they've just got one half of what the scriptures taught about the Messiah. Um, you know, again, we want to make sure we don't go to the other side and just say like, all Christ is, is suffering. No, of course, he he suffers, and that is how uh, he wins our salvation. But in the end, it still is glory, right? But but they certainly were stuck on the glory and uh, overlooking the suffering that, that had been prophesied uh, years before. 
Right. Yeah. And not only, I mean, are they skipping over the suffering, but they just, they don't see how the suffering actually is a part of Jesus' glory. We talked a little bit about that in previous texts. Uh, Just for example, in, in the most previous one where Jesus uses the image of the grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying so that it then produces a harvest, the, the suffering and death is integral to the glory. It's not just a, a bump in the road or a, a snag in the plan, but it's actually a part of the glory. And that's where, again, these, these people listening to Jesus are stumbling over that, which I, I suppose, I mean, you see that throughout the scriptures, that the fact that, well, to use Paul, you know, we preach Christ crucified, that's a stumbling block, that, that people just can't see how, why would you worship a God who was crucified? Of all, of all kinds of gods that are out there, the one that's crucified, why that one? Well, that's the glory. But it, it is a stumbling block, not just for the people here, but it continues to be a stumbling block still today. Yeah, and that's where we get this, you know, kind of wonderful thing where from our perspective, as we read Jesus talk about being lifted up, again, the people here, even in that phrase, lifted up, even though like we might say in the English that that has, if you know, if we just look at the words itself, it has this idea of exaltation of glory, right? Being lifted up should be that way. Uh, and yet all they hear with lifted up in this case is suffering. And even though they're thinking about glory, 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 you know, you, you'd almost kind of hope they could put the two together that when he uses that phrase, he's actually linking those two that his lifting up in suffering is also his being lifted up in glory. Yeah. As you pointed out, another thing to, to see in this verse is that they are connecting Christ and son of man. We, we see Jesus use the term son of man for himself throughout the gospels. And of course, John has recorded you know thoughts about who is the Christ and what will the Christ be like throughout already. And so the way they, they are putting these two together is correct. I mean, as you said, they've got some Old Testament knowledge that they're putting to use here. They just don't see how what Jesus is saying fits. When I think about you know, what's striking about the way this text progresses, as you said, there's going to be quite a bit of language of condemnation coming up that we're going to talk about. And yet, as I think about all the questions that Jesus has faced throughout this his ministry up to this point, this is one of the the least intimidating or or like maybe more honest seeming questions that Jesus has faced. This really seems to be coming from a place of we we don't understand. Now again, John's going to tell us it comes from unbelief. But of all the questions he's faced, this one seems a, a little more asking for information, and it's just missing that that key piece of of who the son of man, what kind of son of man he, we should actually be expecting from the old Testament. Yeah. I kind of liken this to sometimes, you know, say, uh, I mean, it could be an adult also, but teaching confirmation and you'll have a student that really is just, um, you know, really trying to explore the scriptures as they're being catechized. And, you know, they kind of come across something that they sort of think is related or is related, but they, you know, they kind of just miss it. But as a teacher, you're kind of like, that's awesome that you're, you know, you're thinking that way, right? That you're putting these things together. Now, let me, you know, kind of put it all in its proper place for you. But that's the kind of question, at least as I read it here, it's one of those where it's like, you're, you're close, right? Now, Jesus needs to, you know, explain it to you a little bit more. 
So as, as we continue then, the question they've asked is, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Because they don't understand how the Christ, who's supposed to remain forever, how is Jesus saying he's going to die? Jesus gives an answer, and as Jesus often does when he gets a question, sometimes it seems he doesn't answer it as directly, <laughs> at least as I would like him to answer it, I suppose. So they, you know, they've asked, how can you say these things? Who is the Son of Man? And Jesus starts talking about walking in the light, lest darkness overtake you. What's the connection? What's Jesus doing here in his answer? Well, yeah, I mean, in this way, if, you know, if your uh, listeners have been kind of following along, you know, I mean, really, this is taking us right back to John chapter one here of the talk of Christ being this light, uh, this light that the darkness cannot uh, comprehend or cannot overcome. Uh, you know, he takes us back to that kind of language. But you are right that in one way, you know, it's like, okay, Jesus, we're we're trying to figure out this son of man talk, this Christ talk. Yeah? And he answers and says, listen, okay, let's go back to the light, right? And and yeah, you wonder if they kind of say, oh, okay, we, it's another thing we got to figure out now too, right? What's all this talk of light and darkness? But certainly, I mean, all throughout the scriptures from Genesis on, light and dark, of course, is a, a contrast that is there. But John's gospel really in the New Testament, uh, highlights this for us. And so he, you know, he simply says uh, in another way uh, that he is going to go away, that he is going to die because he says, you know, the light is among you for a little while longer. And again, knowing what we know, I mean, we're talking days longer, right? Or, I mean, again, if we count, uh, you know, the days after the uh, resurrection, we could say, you know, a little little over a month longer, right, that he'll be um, on earth in in various ways. Uh, but it, it is a very little time. I, I did find it interesting in reading a little bit. I always like to kind of, when I have the opportunity to, you know, read some of the the more ancient church fathers that uh, wrote about this. And there's, there's one called Christensen, which is uh, maybe your Hearers are familiar with him. His his nickname was Golden Mouth. He was kind of known to be just a, a great, you know, putter together of words. And I say it that way, he'd probably be disappointed in what I just said <laughs> there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but he does, I, I thought it was interesting. He says here, you know, but isn't it interesting that this idea of the light going away, if people are going to reckon that according to the most natural way, they're thinking about this as, you know, the light going away at sunset. Right. And he says, isn't it kind of wonderful that even though he doesn't, you know, specifically talk resurrection here, there's sort of this implied, well, the dawn will come, right? This is just what light does. It goes away and then it, then it comes back. But certainly, and this is where the historical um, knowing where we are in the story, I guess, is very important that Jesus really is bringing an urgency to the few days that are ahead. And he really is sort of, I think this is where we get kind of this, um, almost a hinge moment here in our text, if we can, between those who are doubting, who are wondering, who are asking questions. And then soon we're going to kind of get this language of those who are hardened in unbelief. And Jesus is kind of really calling them use the time wisely. You either have to believe, in which case you will become a son of light, right? Or 
you're going to fall into this category uh, that we soon will talk about. So it is kind of, I think, a way of Jesus saying to these people with legitimate uh, questions, or at least reasonable, maybe is a better word than legitimate. He's saying to them, this is an urgent time. I'm here. The light of the world is here right before you. So, you know, uh, walk in that light instead of in darkness. So, I mean, historically speaking, then, with this being Palm Sunday, the light being among you for a little while longer, and then the darkness that's about to come, we're talking about the the very short amount of time on a calendar between Palm Sunday and the events of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter, and maybe then extending that all the way to the Ascension, so that the, the rest of the time Jesus is here walking around like you and I walk around, that time is short, so pay attention now, believe now while he's here, because when he's when he's not, after he's ascended, then that makes the the faith all that more difficult, I suppose. It, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna believe, do it now because it's not gonna get any easier later. Yeah, no, I think that is it. And again, I mean, obviously, um, obviously, people are going to come to faith through the work of the Spirit in the church after Jesus is gone. But I do think, yeah, we don't want to miss the point that Jesus is noting that this is a very particular moment in all of human history where the light of the world is standing right uh, there in front of them. And that's a moment that, uh, again, will will not be uh, occurring until, right, the, the final dawn when he, when he returns again. Uh, and so, yeah, he, he just encourages them to, um, you know, walk in the light. And, and this is a way Jesus uh, talks, and particularly that John uh, notes for us that Jesus talks, and then John in his epistles and things loves this language as well. Uh, this kind of just, you know, this overall idea that walking in the light is that our overall existence, what we're doing every day, our, what we're doing when we're, you know, lying down and going out and all those things, that's that's walking in the light as being in the faith. And then he, you know, I think it is important to hear that he says, you know, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Uh, and this just confirms in us again, right, that this is how this happens, right? That we receive the grace of God through faith, and that's how we become a son of light. And, you know, that that last part kind of speaks of regeneration, because uh, we who by ourselves are darkness and do darkness uh, now become sons of light, right? We're, we're born anew uh, as children of light instead of children of darkness. So in that last verse that we've been looking at, verse 36, that becoming sons of light while you have the light, and again, that happens through faith, by believing in the light, that then is is speaking more broadly, not just about the, you know, the time on the calendar between Palm Sunday and all the way through Jesus' ascension, but in verse 36, we're speaking about regeneration, conversion for, for people throughout the ages. Yeah, no, I think certainly it's, it's you know, and this is always um, part of the problem, or part, not the problem, but part of the process, rather, of biblical interpretation, right, is knowing which things sort of to apply in a direct one-for-one way to us. And sometimes when things have uh, principles that are for us, but maybe the specifics were directed at a particular time in a particular place. And this is one that I think, yeah, we can um, really, you know, apply quite broadly uh, across human history and therefore to us uh, today as well. 
Looking in uh, verse 35 there again, where Jesus says, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. If, I, if I've looked at the Greek correctly, that, that language of the darkness overtaking you is the same language that John uses in his prologue in chapter 1, where he says in, in chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Or sometimes, right. it's, I mean, that can be translated, I think, in a number of ways. But that idea that the the darkness cannot overcome the light who is Jesus is there in, in chapter one. I think we are dealing with the same word here. So that if if you are not in that light of Christ, the darkness will overtake you. And the only way that you are not overcome or overtaken by the darkness is to be in the light who is Christ. I mean, I think that really strengthens the the sense of urgency and the warning that's present in these words of Jesus. Yeah, no, I, I think you are, you're exactly right. And I just think, you know, think overall of, you know, how darkness does overtake, right? Every night, right? Darkness does overtake. And so we know that it's sort of a, you know, it's a powerful force even in, in nature. Um, and I think you're exactly right throughout this, right? That there's this overwhelming sense that again, without Jesus, you're in the darkness and you will be in the darkness and the darkness will overcome you. Uh, but the the solution is uh, simple and it's beautiful and it's it's glorious in the end, right? And even like we said, even glorious through suffering. Um, that if you are in the light, then you go from this person that's going to be easily overcome to one who has that light which cannot be overcome, uh, even dwelling inside of them. And thinking about these words of Jesus, then the, the urgency is certainly there for the people who are listening to Jesus all, on Palm Sunday, and I, I think the urgency remains there for us still today. But let's talk about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking about John chapter 12 this morning with Pastor Philip Hoppy. We'll be right back. Please stick around. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, March 9th. We're studying John chapter 12, verses 34 to 43 with Pastor Philip Hoppe. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. Pastor Hoppe, prior to the break, we were looking at Jesus' answer in verses 35 and 36, and he speaks of the great urgency to believe in him to those who are there right in front of him on Palm Sunday. We've mentioned that there is certainly a very historical nature to those words that we 
need to pay attention to, but there's also application for us still today. Talk about the urgency of Jesus' words for us today in terms of the light and darkness. Why is there still that urgency for us to hear and believe? Right. So this is one of those times where the metaphor, right, like we talked about, said, um, or, or, you know, we have this metaphor that's being spoken of, of the particular days that we're dealing with in the text. But certainly this is a metaphor that we can now take out. And and certainly I think this the scripture does this other places. It simply kind of says, you know, the light shines until that last day, right? Mm-hmm. And the only problem is in that sense, we don't know when the sunset will come, right? We can't get out our app and check and see what exact moment uh, the sunset will come. And so the urgency comes for us too, is that as long as the proclamation of the light of the world is going out in the world, now is the day, right? Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to uh, receive that light and its forgiveness. Now is the time then to walk in that light uh, because we do not know when that light of this world, the light of the time uh, of us living in the world will go away. And obviously there it's urgent because we wish to continue in the light, not uh, go into utter darkness forever. So the urgency with which Jesus called the people of Jerusalem to faith in him at that moment still goes forward today. Hear the word of Christ, believe in him. The other thing that kind of struck me about these words, and I'm not sure if this is if this is from this next this text necessarily, or if it's I don't know if I'm stretching things a little bit too far, but thinking about the matter of light in this little while that Jesus is talking about, it, it strikes me to a degree that where are you going to see Jesus and who he is most clearly? You know, to go back to that original question they ask, who is this son of man? The, the place that you're going to see Jesus most clearly, where the light will shine brightest, is in the events that are about to take place in Holy Week, such that, you know, if, if you want the light to shine upon Jesus most clearly, you need to watch what happens to him on Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday, all the way to his ascension. That's where you're going to see him most clearly. It's not that the other things that he does are, are darkness, but the the place you'll see him most clearly is in those events. I don't know. That might be stretching the text a little bit too far. But it was a thought that that occurred to me as you were talking earlier. No, I I think that you know um, another church father Ambrose and I should have written down the exact words because they they were beautiful. But he he really kind of brings out what you're saying because he talks about you know. Jesus being light, you know, when he's up on the cross. And then he even has this image of, you know, Jesus's descent into hell, this, you know, announcement of his victory. He he says, you know, even when he goes into hell, he lights up hell for a moment, you know. And so uh, I think you're right, you know, that that we can't forget that these actual events at the end of Palm Sunday, or excuse me, of, of passion, uh, of his passion, you know, his death and resurrection here, those are brightest the light will ever shine, even though to the eye it might not quite appear that way. So this is Jesus preaching on Palm Sunday to the crowds, and then the rest of our text records the result, what what happened. And tragically, Jesus said these things, this is the middle of verse 36, but then he departs and hides out of unbelief, their unbelief is is where John takes us. So, So talk about Jesus' actions, he departs, he hides, and then John gives us some of the Old Testament text to keep in mind. Help us into this next section. 
Yeah. So um, again, we're not told this exactly, but I do think the language here where he kind of, you know, it says that he, you know, he hid himself from them uh, even kind of suggests that maybe in this moment, there's sort of a obvious turn in the crowd, or at least uh, those in the crowd who do not believe um, that, you know, Jesus kind of understands that this is going to get much more dangerous, or it is much more dangerous. And, you know, this is part of the wonder of Holy Week is how, you know, it's not that Jesus is not going to suffer. It's not that he's not going to die, but it is that he is still in control and he will suffer and die, even though from the outside, it looks like, you know, at others' hands and at others' direction, he ultimately is in control of this whole timetable. And so here he seems to withdraw uh, from the people because of their unbelief and perhaps because he fears that that unbelief will uh, turn to wrath. And he, he pulls away. And then, you know, as he pulls away, we sort of, it, it's like John now kind of is going to uh, give us well, what's all going on here, right? What what just happened in this scene? And, and he leads us then uh, into passages from Isaiah. And these are passages that come up at various places in the New Testament scriptures. And I think every time they do, um, they're, they're sort of hard to swallow. The language here is so, uh, direct and it's so, um, you know, it uses the language of God, uh, hardening people and, and God, um, you know, revealing his arm, but only then ultimately, uh, you know, if we talk about the light, you know, he, this light ends up blinding their eyes and it, you know, uh, and then their heart is hard unless they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. And so John tells us that at this point, right, certainly there are those who are hardened in their unbelief. And obviously we probably want to talk about that whole idea a little bit more, uh, but I think John just wants us uh, to know here. And he also, of course, you know, John is a, a book of signs, as you've been studying, right? Uh, and the ultimate sign, of course, is going to be his death and his resurrection. Uh, and so um, there's sort of this this idea here, too, that even though they had seen all these signs, you think of, um, you know, Jesus saying that, you know, uh, Tyre and Sidon are going to rise up against uh, those uh, who in Galilee saw all these signs of Jesus and yet did not believe. It's a very similar thought here is that these people had every advantage. They saw these signs that John has been recounting for us, and yet they still did not believe. Uh, and now he's kind of getting us into the, how did that all happen? Or it's almost kind of a, a heavenly perspective of how that sort of goes from unbelief to hardened unbelief, if we can say that. Okay, so he he accomplishes this, or he brings to our mind, by bringing up two passages from Isaiah. The first one that he brings up says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he says that means they couldn't believe, and then he quotes again from Isaiah, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Where do those two passages come from in Isaiah? How is, how is John using them here? 
Right. So they come from Isaiah 53 and then Isaiah 6. And we'll want to particularly, I think, in a moment here, remember that the second one comes from Isaiah 6, because that'll help us to understand uh, something in the verses to come. Uh, But yeah, he certainly takes this. And I mean, again, we have other times in the scriptures. Um, You know, one of the key times, of course, would be uh, the Pharaoh in Egypt uh, with Moses going and bringing the plagues. Well, I should say God brings the plagues, but at the announcement of Moses, um, you know, there's that period of time where we get this language of hardening, but probably the secondary time and maybe the most important when we're quoting Isaiah is just this period of rebellion that ends up with the uh, Israelites, uh, the, the those of Judah being removed uh, from the promised land. And now I think what John is simply trying to do here is to say to us that is still going on or that is happening again, uh, that the same thing that happened to the Pharaoh, the same thing that happened with those rebellious Israelites at the end uh, when God had finally decided that Babylon would come in, that is what is happening now. Mm. So these are are difficult words, I think, for us to hear, especially when we speak of God hardening their heart, although blinding their eyes is similar language in that quote from Isaiah 6. You you brought up Pharaoh, his heart being hardened, and there's numerous examples we could think of. What what do we make of this? How How do we understand this so that we don't flee from God, as, as perhaps some would do, how do we understand this act of God in hardening hearts? Right. So I think, first of all, we want to be reminded that God is not, we're not talking about something here where God is just deciding to harden someone's heart against him, sort of just, you know, flipping a coin and deciding to harden this heart over here, but not that one over there. Uh, It's sort of clear in all of the passages that talk about this hardening of heart uh, that God, he is doing something, and I think it's important that we get that, but he's doing something because the people are stubbornly uh, unbelieving towards him. Uh, You know, it kind of goes back to these words, though he had done all these signs, they still did not believe in him. And God does again, at times, and this is where we have to be careful not to necessarily come and say, well, I know when God has done this in our day or something like that, but he does at times simply sort of seal the people that are unbelieving in their unbelief. He he kind of gives them what they want. Um, one, of the, one of the ways this was uh, phrased uh, in something I was reading is that, you know, he he withdraws his aid and he lets the person be alone, right? He That's what they wanted and that's what he gives them. Um, we could say a lot of things about this, but it is, it is a word that should uh, bring terror to the one who is prideful, right? Who thinks that they can sin or that they can just go on not really uh, placing their trust in the Lord and that, you know, ah, who cares? Sometime I'll turn this around. You know, it's it'll be easy for me to do when I want to. Uh, there is a word of warning here that no, uh, God does at times, even before the final day, harden the hearts of people. Um, mm-hmm. But never just 
because he decides to, right? It's always a, a judgment upon their unbelief that already exists. Yeah, I, I think the way that you phrased it, that he gives them what they want, is a is accurate to the way the scriptures speak, and is helpful when we think about the the great warning that's here, especially for you know for anyone who is who is desiring sin and chasing after sin and choosing sin over and over again. If the Lord starts to actually let you have what you want, watch out. That's a that's a very dangerous or a very strict judgment from the Lord. And I think you see it here that that this is the Lord giving unbelief what it wants. Jesus withdraws. He's he's not going to to speak to teach to these people anymore from this point forward other than the very end of chapter 12. Jesus is going to be speaking to his disciples from here on out and teaching them and to to think about, you know, what Jesus has just said about walk in the light while you have it. And now that light is withdrawing. That's a, a rather terrible judgment that Jesus would give them what they want. And yet that's, oh, what a, I mean, what a, that should frighten us. And it, it should strike terror into the heart that's going that way. For those who do believe, as, as we think of the, the difficulty of these words, one thing that we don't want to do is become prideful, to think that somehow for, for something inside of us, God has has made us better than them or something like that. No, it is it is only by the grace of God that we do believe. And I think that's helpful for us to keep in mind as Christians hearing these words. Yeah, and I found it really um, interesting that um, Augustine, um, he, he really gets into here, when he starts talking, you almost think he's, um, <clears throat> you know, that this is the passage that perhaps Luther, who of course uh, studied a lot of uh, Augustine, um, you know, was thinking of when he wrote the third article uh, of the creed, uh, the the meaning to that, because um, when speaking of this hardening, Augustine really says like, you know, we have to remember that when God does withdraw, this is the only option. He says, you know, we like to think of the human will again as being able to choose to go one way or another. And we kind of think sometimes that that can occur uh, even without God's presence, right? That it's just sort of in man, that he can choose to do good, he can choose to believe, he can choose not to do either of those things. But Augustine says, no, right? This is why the heart is hardened, because if God withdraws, there is no other option. Humanity does not have the ability to believe, right? As as we always confess there in that meaning of the catechism, that we cannot by our own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ as Lord or come to him. Right. And, and I, I guess I never made that connection before with the this hardening aspect that in one way, right, when God, it, it is simply a withdrawing of God, but that at that moment, gosh, everything is helpless. Everything is hopeless. And, and I suppose, I mean, when you think about the way that this progresses in the in the scriptures, even with Pharaoh as an example, you know, when you look at his story in the book of Exodus, for the first several plagues, the text is very specific that Pharaoh hardens his heart before, I think it's after plague five or six, where it says God hardened his heart. Even after all that, Moses still goes to Pharaoh and preaches. And and you know in that preaching that is to the unbelievers, although it continues to have this effect of hardening, God's God's desire is to the to heart to soften the heart, to to bring that heart to repentance. 
Of course, it continues to not have that effect, which is all the more tragic. It has that effect because the people don't want it to soften their heart anyway. But I, I think, I mean, that's also an important thing to keep in mind that that even even in those cases where the heart is being hardened and you know that's what's happening, still we know what the scriptures say about God's desire to bring to repentance. And even in those moments where the heart is being hardened by the preaching, you know that God still wants the repentance to happen. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it's practically very important because, and I think particularly maybe um, in the moment of history we are in here in you know the United States is it is it is very easy to just say, well, gosh, it looks like all these people are becoming hardened to God, therefore, why why proclaim any longer out amongst them? Right. I mean, it, this is an act of judgment of God and it's over. And like you said, even though in one sense it doesn't make a lot of sense because we've got these passages that say, well, they're not going to hear, they're not going to listen. Yet God clearly shows us what are we to do, that all being true. We're to proclaim <laughs> the good news of Jesus. We're to proclaim his law and his gospel. Uh, and so please, we don't want to use this as an excuse to sit back and say, well, God's judged everyone. So we'll just, you know, sit here and not uh, proclaim that message long and loud from our uh, from our churches and wherever else we're called to go in life, right? Uh, I think there is a real danger that we can use this as, as an excuse not to proclaim. And yet every example, like you said, I mean, you do wonder by the end, it's like, Glenn, is it even worth going to Pharaoh anymore, right? Why is he still even telling him, just send the next plague, just, you know, click the next button and get it on, uh, you know, going on here for, for uh, you know, the, the people of Egypt. But he every time proclaims. Yeah, that's right. So keep keep proclaiming, church. Keep announcing the good news of Christ crucified and risen for sinners. Now, as the the text continues, John says in verse forty one that Isaiah, whom he's quoted twice, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Which this is one of the most remarkable verses I think in the New Testament that that Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. How do you how do you understand this verse, Pastor Hoppy? Well, to be honest, when I started looking at this again, you know, at, at first I took this a little bit more just generally. You know, I mean, we have the prophets, and one of the things by God's you know power enlightenment they do is to see. Uh, into the future in the in the sense of they proclaim things that are going to happen. And as I first started to study this text, I kind of thought, well, I think that's mostly what's being said of is here, Isaiah certainly, probably we might say more than any other prophet, speaks about the Messiah coming, about the Messiah's suffering, about the Messiah's reign, all these things we've been talking about, about his glory. He, he speaks about all those. But then when I got to thinking about, especially that this second passage uh, is from Isaiah 6, now you go back and you think, well, what's going on in Isaiah 6? Well, this is, you know, Isaiah's call into ministry. He's in the temple and he beholds God, you know, coming to dwell. He sees, you know, just the 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 uh, hem of the train of his robe or, you know, uh, I forget the exact wording there, but that's close. Um and yet, I think there is something here where we're being told that Isaiah, even in that moment, right, we might look back and go, oh, he saw God the Father. But really, I think we're being told what he beheld was the triune God, right? And in that way, 
he Esau, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And uh, being given this glorious revelation, right? Then, you know, of course, after that, Isaiah says, send me, right? I'll, I'll go and, and talk about this, right? Uh, and he does. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you take it exactly the same way, but I, I tend to think we're, we're talking both about the specific moment of his call that he, in that sense, sees Jesus. Uh, and then throughout all of his prophecies, his oracles, uh, there he also is foreseeing what Jesus is going to do uh, and proclaiming that. Yeah, I, I think, I've, I mean, I would connect it to chapter 6 as well, because again, as you said, that's where the most recent quote from Isaiah comes from. But it, it's in Isaiah 6, the first verse of that chapter, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. There you have that language of, of lifted up. And again, I think as you're reading Isaiah 6, you're probably thinking, okay, God the Father is sitting on his throne. But I, I wonder with the idea of being lifted up here that Jesus connects it to, if maybe we can get a little more specific as to what Isaiah saw that when it, and of course, you know, when it says he saw his glory, is it his glory, Jesus's glory? Is it the father's glory? I mean, I suppose, you know, the, the text there could go either way and might affect exactly how you take it. I've, I've generally taken it more in the sense of that Isaiah saw his glory means like Isaiah saw what would happen to Christ specifically in his death and his resurrection. And that's why he was able to write these things. But I, I think there's probably room to, to have plenty of discussion over exactly what that means. It does, I think, stand in distinction to what's happening at the moment. You know, on the one hand, you've got the prophet Isaiah about 700 years before Christ, who sees these things and believes and writes of them. On the other hand, you've got these people here in front of Jesus who see him face to face and don't believe in him. There's, there's quite the contrast there. I, I do think, at least I've always looked at John 12, 41 as one of those remarkable verses about the the truth of the prophets and and the fact that they were writing about Christ ahead of time and believing about Christ ahead of time, that the faith that they had was faith in Christ before he came, just as we have faith in Christ after he's come. So I've I've always, I guess I've attached all those things to that verse. Yeah, no, I think so. And I don't know whether you've ever looked at this, just as you were talking, it made me wonder, I wonder what the the Septuagint, right, when they translate uh, that high and lifted up, you know, mm -hmm. is, is it the same word here that we get as lifted up? I don't know. I don't know if it is or not. I don't know if you've looked at that, but that would be no, an interesting. No, I haven't looked at that one. Yeah, it'd be interesting because if it is, then, you know, you can't even go, boy, you know, maybe maybe there's even more to that connection than than is there. But like you said, at the at the, there's plenty here <laughs> already, uh, and it's always good to leave a little bit of wonder, right? And uh, yeah. exactly what an event like that call of Isaiah, what all was involved there, because it certainly was beyond Isaiah's grasp of comprehension, right? And so we shouldn't think maybe that we should. We've got it all figured out. We knew exactly that's what right. he saw, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But whatever he saw was wonderful and he believed and he spoke of it. He wrote it down as well. Now, John concludes our text for today by noting that some of the authorities did, in fact, many, he says, believed in Jesus, but they wouldn't come out openly because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What do we find out there in those last two verses? Well, you know, this is a kind of sad way to to end our verses here, you know, but we are told that there are those um, that did believe in him, and, and yet at the very least, they did not 
confess it, right? And why? Well, again, uh, we, we should be clear here. They say they are fearful of being put out of the synagogue. And without spending a lot of time on that, we know that being put out of the synagogue at this time could literally put your your livelihood and therefore your life at danger. So this is a, I mean, this is not just like, oh, we don't, you know, we want to be with the popular crowd. I think they were literally worried about their overall livelihood. But ultimately then we are told at the end because they they loved the glory of men. And this is where two, I think that could be two ways. Either one, the glory of man me, meaning their own livelihood. They they valued their own well-being over the glory of God, right? And what's the glory of God? Well, it's Jesus, right? Jesus on the cross. So that's what they took more value of. Or it could mean here, and I think this is the more typical way, is that uh, they did want the the approval uh, of these others um, who were in charge, you know, the Pharisees and others. Uh, they wanted the approval of them as well. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. It's I don't know exactly which way to go there. Um, I think that, you know, the other words of the text actually lead a little bit more to the idea that the glory of man is about their own livelihood. They're afraid they're going to have real troubles. Uh, But again, you know, this is one of those times we need to stop and ask, right? Um, Which which do we uh, love more, right? Do we love our own well-being, our own comfort, our own whatever you want to put there, pleasure, uh, more than we love the glory of God, Jesus, right? Uh, or are we willing to trade all of that, consider all of that rubbish, as Paul says, right, uh, in order that we might have a share in his death and his resurrection? Pastor Hoppy, we have about a minute left. Help us to wrap things up on this text from John chapter 12. Give us the good news that's ours in Christ. Yeah, so while this passage, again, specifically kind of draws our attention to those who end up uh, not believing and being hardened in their unbelief. And even this, you know, the last part about those who sadly kind of believe, but will not confess that with their mouths. There's all of this kind of bad news. But I think it's written down for us to simply say, don't follow in their path, right? Uh, as Jesus said, instead, come and walk in the light, believe in the light, and you will be sons of the light. That's what Jesus offers us always, but specifically in this text, he offers that to us again, that all these fearful things we have heard, we need not be concerned with if we will just believe in the light, Jesus, walk in his light, uh, and let him, right, uh, make us into sons of light. Pastor Philip Hoppe is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Colby, Kansas. He's been helping us today to study John chapter 12, verses 34 to 43. Pastor Hoppe, thanks for being our guest today. Glad to be with you again. I'm your host on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. John, we'd love to hear from you. Please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to get your email. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk again tomorrow.